Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 44th episode, I'll be talking to Lucy Harrison, sound designer and composer, about appreciating media from entirely the wrong decade. Along the way, we'll discuss building a fort out of your childhood, how reboots of Flowerpot Men never quite match the original, and remember a shining moment in cross-language comedy. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? So I'm a composer and sound designer and I specialise in interactive sound art, so that's sound where you do stuff in the sound reacts. And I also write a bit and kind of do, I think I'm calling it a collage career at the moment because it's a lot of little things. What makes me a beautiful and unique uh, snowflake is a very difficult question. I think people have that every time you ask. Everyone's like, Ugh. <laughs> well, I was told in one of my yearly upgrade meetings that you have to have at university that I think differently to other people. And I'm not sure if it was a good thing or a bad thing, but I come at things from a different angle. I'll go with that. I'm choosing to believe it's a good thing. It's one of those diversity of thought things. Yes. But again, it's definitely one of those kind of, you step out of a meeting after you hear that and you go, huh, I don't honestly know. <laughs> I don't know what it means, but I quite like it. I think it kind of means that, from a composer point of view, other people start with a musical idea. Oh, I'm going to make a piece based around this chord or this structural thing. And I go, I'm going to build a fort and it's going to have music in it. I think that was it. (laughs) So now I want to hear about the fort. So I built a fort. It was in East London last year. It was actually a lot of different forts. So there was a blanket one and a cardboard one and one with cushions and then little individual like solo forts for if you wanted to fort alone. And each of them had a little soundscape that was meant to an interactive sound thing to kind of remind you of childhood things and bring you back to that place where you were. It was it was aimed at people in their 20s and 30s, so it was kind of looking at 90s sound. So there was an interactive hopscotch on one of them. Okay. Do you guys know? Yeah, hopscotch is a universal word, isn't it? Indeed it is, yes. So when you stepped on it, it played... One of them played Sounds of Ice Cream Vans, and the other one was the sound of the recorder doing kind of the first three notes that you learn. So that B, A, and G. And then... Yeah. And then another one had kind of 90s game show sounds. We had a lot of game shows over here in the 90s that did these kind of sci-fi soundscapes, and that was the, the sounds that we had to kind of start you on your fort adventure. And books and things like that. That's really cool. So I think that's probably why I think differently. (laughs) See, now I want to ask, because I know it's one of those things that no one thinks about, but what music do ice cream vans play in the UK? 
The one near us used to play O Solomio. Okay. Which was featured. <laughs> that, was not, that was not the answer I expected. I was expecting. Okay, it's because it's, I know it's Green Sleeves here in Australia. Well, some of them play Green Sleeves. Okay. Every van has its own tune. But the O Solomio is there was a big advert where that was set to just one cornetto. So, <laughs> so it was about the cornettos because it was such a big advert. I think it started in the 70s. So that plays on a lot of fans. A lot of them play Popeye the Sailor Man. Okay, because, <laughs> because a, car- a cartoon with grotesque forearms in love with spinach just screams ice cream. Yeah, there's no reason to the British ice cream fans. And also sometimes you just hear them driving away. And that's a very sad sound. It's like, oh, they never stopped. <laughs> they just kept going. <laughs> yes, I had a, a summer when I was in high school where I pedaled around one of those little ice cream bicycle cart things. And it was not too bad, It's, it's except for we didn't have anything that played music. We just had like little bells that you would flip over and flip back with your thumbs as you pedaled. Oh, that's not as fun. It's not It's not really as cool, but the only problem became I then went to school in September after a, two months of doing this and realized that the cap that I would wear had left a very pale line at the top of my head <laughs> where the rest of me was tanned, and they took the picture on the second day for your bus pass, oh, and so no. my student ID had that white tan line across the top of my forehead. God, that's terrible. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Also, I'm surprised none of the ice cream melted because there were certainly days where it was far too hot to be pedaling around. So I would pull over to a shady area and pull out a book that I had snuck into my pocket of my shorts and would just sit in the shade and read. Were you paid by the hour or was it like, you know, leafleters, they're paid just to get rid of them all? (laughs) Well, basically what we were paid was, I'm trying to remember, it's like basically we would count how much money we brought in and we would get a portion of that. So if you had a really good day, you would make more money. But if you didn't sell anything, then you didn't really get much of anything. So it was in your interest not just to go out, but to actively seek out areas where you could sell ice cream. Ah, that's a better business model. Considering it, we were a bunch of layabout teenagers who could not be relied upon to do anything. Yeah. (laughs) My summer job was I was an activity organizer in an English language summer school, which is when all these very rich kids come over here to learn English. So we had a lot of different jobs and we were all quite sleep deprived because it, it was long hours and low pay. One of our jobs was to make sure the children weren't having sex. <laughs> and it would be on like during a disco or something, like half of us would have to be off on sex watch. <laughs> were there special hats for sex watch? There should be. There were torches. <laughs> I imagine it'd be like when you've got cats that are misbehaving, you would just get a little water bottle with a squirt gun on the top of it. Yeah. Just, it was, hey, tss, 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 out of there. It was that level of just spoiling the mood. That's what we were there to do. <laughs> and just jump out from places. Professional mood killers. <laughs> yeah. Moods killed, cocks blocked, stepladders repaired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my business cards. That's what should be on it. Ah, <laughs> So... Lucy, whereabouts did you grow up? So I grew up in a village near Manchester in England, and it's one of those places that people only know by other places. It's not a picturesque village, it's called Hamforth, and you have to describe it by, well, it's kind of between Stockport and Macclesfield, and it's a place that you just drive through. (laughs) So it's known as a corridor village, which means that it doesn't have a village green or a duck pond or anything that makes it a nice village. How yeah. can, can it officially be called a village if it doesn't have a village green? I find that deeply offensive. Well, Conservative Party, who were our MPs, I think they still are power there. We're in an odd time for the UK at the moment. <laughs> they wanted to rename it a town 
because it wasn't picturesque and didn't have a village green. <laughs> but that never went through. So I'm, I'm not really sure. Its biggest claim to fame is that it has a big supermarket outside it that all the Man United players shop at. So sometimes, <laughs> if you timed it right, you could queue up behind David Beckham. Yeah, I've just looked it up, and literally the image for the town is like, it looks like to be an office park with a parking lot in front of it and a gigantic roundabout out front. Oh. I don't, e- I don't even know. <laughs> I didn't know that was the picture. Is well, the I way- just looked it up on Google Maps and just above the name, where it also tells me that it is cloudy and 13 degrees Celsius at 7.20 a.m., <laughs> there's just a picture, and I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's the supermarket. No, it's just a strange office park. Yeah, it's probably one of them. There's not much going on, but it's... <laughs> It was a good place to grow up, really, because we could just be out on our bikes all the time. It wasn't interesting enough to be dangerous. Well, there are parts of it that are a bit dangerous. I believe it was built as an overflow for Manchester council estates. So they ran out of space in Manchester for the social housing, and they just needed more space, so they made Hanforth. So it's got two big council estates and then a bit in the middle, which is where I live, because we're slightly posher. (laughs) The other towns nearby... They're a bit, well, we're like the, the scummy cousins. Somebody <laughs> somebody on the train was going through to one of the posh villages because there's a place called the Golden Triangle in Cheshire and we're two miles outside of that and those two miles make a big difference. And going through on the train, this girl's like, yes, I'm just going through Hanforth now. The ghetto. Gunforth. <laughs> <laughs> there is no gun crime. It's just random jumpings in our village, which is when you don't even mug someone, you just jump them and beat them up okay that that sentence changed midway through i was waiting for you don't mug them you just jump on them no you you just <laughs> like jumping someone is beating them up ah yes gotcha no I, I figured that i just thought you were going to be incredibly literal at the end of it <laughs> no, no yeah there's parts of it but that's i think every place is dodgy area certainly yeah yeah as a childhood it was quite idyllic because we just went out on our bikes rode around all day and then went back home for tea as in dinner yes I not like not like high tea we weren't, you know, having finger sandwiches and cakes. Although I have learned that there's a very fancy pub near my house called the Empire Hotel. And they have a very comfortable dining room where they have all kinds of, you know, grandfather chairs and a fireplace and such. And they do a cocktail high tea Ooh. where they will do all the little sandwiches and all the little cakes and pastries and things. And also several, you know, themed cocktails. And they sell out every single month. And you go by and it's just entirely older women who are just in there, in their cups. And I think they take the sconces off the tables. Like they take the candle holders off the tables because that crowd is not trusted with open flames. Well, no, not if you're doing tiny, tiny sandwiches and a lot of alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) In this in-between so-called ghetto, between the one place and the other place, what sort of kid were you? I checked this with my mum last night. I was a weird kid. (laughs) (laughs) I I like that you've gone for a primary source other than yourself. Yeah, I was like, I think it was all quite normal, but I'm aware that adults didn't necessarily trust me. Not in a, I was going to burn everything down way. I was very small and very quiet and very judgmental. (laughs) So adults kind of thought that I was just sat judging them. Uh, (laughs) But the question is, were you? Well, in part, if they did something very stupid, (laughs) then my dad was sure that I was judging him. And that was true. And one time in my school news, you know, you have your at the weekend. So mine was at the weekend, my daddy cooked his underpants. (laughs) Because he had... And he was mortified that I'd written this down in a school thing. But he had. His pants weren't dry and he grilled them to dry them off. (laughs) So if you kind of do something like that, 
Was it in the oven or was it like out on the barbecue? In the oven. <laughs> okay. And he thought I hadn't seen it and then oh. it showed up in my school news. <laughs> so I was judging them. And I was also so quiet that they didn't realise I was there when they were doing things that could be judged. And then the other thing was that nobody ever taught me how to read just one day I could at about three and a half. Okay. So just a very weird matilda package of a child. <laughs> Spontaneously reading. It sounds almost like a combination of Matilda and Harriet the Spy. You're just, <laughs> yeah. you know, quietly writing everything down going, hmm, that'll be good in the news. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> It was his fault. He shouldn't have done it. So I was so quiet that my mum signed me up for everything to try and get me to talk to people. So then I was one of those kids who had something in every night of the week, which was all there kind of built in to make sure that I actually interacted with other people because I think I would have been quite happy just home with books. What sort of things were you signed up for? Oh, let me, let me work out the schedule. <laughs> Monday was Irish dancing because we were an Irish community. Tuesday was recorder lessons. Wednesday was ballet, Thursday was brownies, Friday was swimming, Saturday was tennis. Every night. That's a full schedule. <laughs> yeah, not all of them stuck, but enough of them did. So brownies became guides, went all the way through on that, and I think that's probably why I talk to people is guiding, just because you've got no choice. There's a lot of working together in it. You've got to get those interest badges. Yeah, it's all about the badges. I had so many. <laughs> <laughs> Which ones were you after? Because this is something I spoke to previous guest of the show, Jessica Fletcher, about. Oh, yes. When I was in, I was in Cubs, first Beavers and then Cubs in Canada. And I was the type of child that would attempt to read the description of what would entitle me to a badge. And I would try and do the least amount of work possible and then try and make my case to one of the leaders to be like, huh, huh, see, I've done enough for that. That means I should get this badge. Oh, I was the opposite. I would have all the criteria and I would really work through it very seriously and make sure that it was all done properly. Do not have a musician's badge, which I think as, as a professional musician now is a real shame for me. I think my best one is the crime prevention badge. So I assume you stopped a robbery? <laughs> no, you just had to know <laughs> to lock windows and label things. Because <laughs> I was, like, we were seven. <laughs> We've just done the crime prevention one with I'm a brownie leader now and we've just done that badge with them and we got a local police officer to come in and talk to them and when I came down I was late to the meeting and when I came in the brownies told me they'd been taught how to screen properly. (laughs) (laughs) Really grateful to that policeman. And his theoretical steel eardrums instructing 47 year olds on how to correctly screen. (laughs) Yeah and then he gave them a load of personal protection alarms as presents. And we had to decide not to send them home with those. <laughs> For their poor parents' sake. Yeah, so crime prevention and thrift were the two weirdest ones that I had. So thrift would just, I suppose, be like, you know, oh, if you go into the supermarket and you take the trust tomatoes and then you pick the green bits off them and then you can put them through the cash register as regular tomatoes and they're cheaper. Oh. <laughs> that was not meant to be instruction. <laughs> I just never considered things like that. Thrift was, I think it was about saving your pocket money. I only got, I think at the time, 20 pence a week. But I must have been very thrifty because eventually I could afford a Tamagotchi. Oh. So that must have been about 10 weeks saving? No, there must have been more. So if it was 10 weeks of saving, my question is, how long did that Tamagotchi last before it died? Was it also 10 weeks? 
It was it was definitely more than ten weeks. Oh. And I definitely gave the Tamagotchi away in the end because they're so annoying. <laughs> Nobody ever told you that they just oh. It's almost as if they're a metaphor for responsibility and not yeah. a toy at all. Yeah, I gave that away, so that gives a real sign of. <laughs> oh, don't read into that. It's like the Furby that ended up just face down in a sock drawer to stop it talking. My little sister had a Furby as well, and it was one just one of those things where it was like it just wouldn't stop. Yeah. Like you'd go by, and the little sensor would go off, and and the ears would go, and you're just like, oh, just could you not? And they're a bit demonic as well. So you think they're going to be this great toy, and then they just they sit in your room and they look possessed. I remember, I think, God, it was in the last three or four years, the makers of Furby had to admit that it did not actually listen to what you said because one of them went into the White House, the one of the toys, and it was checked out by the Secret Service and they got essentially a subpoena saying, you need to admit that this is not a listening device. And so they had to then come out and come clean and say, well, it reacts to sound but does not actually listen or differentiate sound at all. So the manual was full of shit. Oh, so it didn't learn from you? Nope. But mine did catch a cold off another Furby. (laughs) I reckon that would have been like some sort of prehistoric near-field communication thing. Yes. You know, where it was the proximity of something inside one and something inside the other reacting to it. And it was like, oh, then it would mimic. There seemed to be maybe like an infrared sensor or something like that. And I think they could pass things that way. But the idea was that you would all get together with your Furbies and hang out. And we did it once, me and my friends, and it was not fun. I was going to say, yeah, all that happened is one of them was sick and made the others sick. Yeah, never again. Which, if you think about it, again, practice for parenting. Bring children together, one brings home a virus, and then everyone in the house is sick. Yeah. Honestly, in the last few years, the sickest I have got of a cold or flu or anything is that we went on a several day sort of holiday with my girlfriend's parents and her sister and her sister's kids and her little brother. Like I was hanging out with a very adorable, very happy baby for a couple of days and came back and got the worst cold I have had since I was a child because children are a little germ factory. They are. And normally when I get ill, I can trace it to one of my brownies. Like you, you're the carrier. You did this. You made me (laughs) ill. I'm a good brownie leader, I swear. No, seems legit. Yeah, it's just, you know, if one of them came with a cold, that shouldn't be allowed. But you can't send them home. Oh, you're not allowed? Well, not for just having a cold. I think they would have to be much more extremely ill. Okay, Lucy, so when we initially wanted to set up the show, and I asked you what you wanted to talk about, you said something very specific that I wanted to investigate. Yeah. You said it was about having the wrong set of pop culture references for your age. Quote, if that's a thing. Which I think it is a thing. But I'd like you to explain it. So, please, what did you mean by that? Yeah, so my parents are very into pop culture, but they're very... Well, they're not quite snobs. Like, it's not high culture that they're into. But they have very set views. And I was raised... Me and my brother were raised on 60s and 70s pop culture, so the stuff from when they were kids, because they thought it was better than what was on at the time. (laughs) And more importantly, that the kids' TV at the time was too educational. So Yeah, it's a rare thing to hear. Oh yeah, it's too educational. We don't want you learning things, Lucy. That would be dangerous. Well, you know, I was a weird, creepy kid, (laughs) so I needed less of the education. (laughs) 
and more fun. So I only realised this when I kind of, I think it was in high school, I was like, wait, you didn't all watch these things. But my mum had a video which is called Watch With Mother. It was a big thing in the 60s and 70s in the UK and it was The Clangers, The Magic Roundabout, Bill and Ben The Flowerpot Men. I think there was one other but I didn't like the other one so I didn't watch it much. So I thought this was what everyone was watching and then it turned out it was just me. I don't know. Do you know the Clangers? <laughs> I do, only because they were around here in Australia as well. And I've had people at parties rather animatedly describe them to me. It's the most fun thing to describe to somebody who's not grown up with them. Because you're like, yeah, they're little knitted space mice. And they live on a planet that's like the moon but isn't the moon. And they communicate by whistles. And they get their soup from the soup dragon. And the soup is in the soup wells. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a slight tangent... In my one trip to the UK, shortly before I came to Australia, and it was a disastrous trip for reasons I'm not going to go into, apart from to say that, hey kids, really make sure you have the right visa, or a three-month trip will become a, you must be out of the country mm. in 10 days. And while I was packing in my giant army surplus duffel bag, my mother packed a little box of Lipton's chicken soup, which was my favorite when I was a kid, and it's just like this dehydrated like yeah. packet soup mix. When I arrived at the UK, I was staying with an internet friend's parents in Reading. And when I arrived, my bags were late. And so when they went to pick up my bags, I opened them to get, you know, a small gift that I'd gotten for them to say thank you for letting me stay there. And all these packets of soup fell out. <laughs> and because it was near to Christmas, they decided to get me a little Christmas present. And so I got a mug with the soup dragon on it, which they then had to explain. There was soup dragon. And soup dragon has like six arms. Yes. So he doesn't look like a normal dragon. <laughs> and he talks differently to the clangers. He's got like, he, he sounds a bit like the teacher in Charlie Brown. It's kind of more like a wah wah sound. Yeah. So that one's a fun one to explain. Bill and Ben are literally men made of flower pots that talk in nonsense. None of them talked with any semblance of like human language. But my mum thought it was a lot more fun than what was out there, which was stuff that taught you how to read. I didn't need that. <laughs> you didn't need to be taught at all. No. Again, another worrying thing about childhood, Lucy. I thought that was normal. I'm actually looking at Bill and Ben now, and they're kind of creepy looking. Yeah. They're, they're sort of terracotta pots with little, almost like little German army helmets with spikes on top. Yeah, they've been rebooted now, and they're a bit friendly looking now, but at the time they were, they were quite creepy, and they lived in this garden with a plant called Little Weed, and Little Weed just goes, Weed! <laughs> for the whole thing. <laughs> and that's how she communicates. I had friends like that at university. Yeah. But <laughs> And then they just, they just talk in nonsense, and there's one where there's a scarecrow in the garden, and the scarecrow keeps getting things put on top of it. And then they sing a little song like, the scarecrow got a hat, because he's got now now he's got a hat on. <laughs> it's really <laughs> fun to explain these shows. And there's another one that they're in the garden and they realise that all the veg plays different sounds and is musical, but only Ben can play the marrow. And it makes Bill very upset. <laughs> as, as well it would. Yes. I've remembered the fourth one. It's Ivor the Engine. Okay. It's a steam engine in Wales. And the engine is part of the local community choir. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes they go and visit Idris, the red-hot dragon. God, the... Again, more dragons. Yeah. <laughs> Prevalent dragons in children's programming in the UK. The UK is weird. <laughs> so that was kind of the very early years experiences. And then I hadn't realised as well that that had carried on. I hadn't realised until very recently that my parents had been doing the same thing when we were young children. Because TV time is kind of family time in our house, which is how my parents managed to get so much control 
So then later on, it was Doctor Who, 60s Batman, and The Prisoner. Yep. So again, like a weird set of references. And I, I yelled something from The Prisoner. Like somebody gave me a number and I went, I am not a number. I am a free man. <laughs> and this friend had never seen it because... People our age shouldn't have seen The Prisoner. <laughs> and she's just like, oh, cool, Lucy lost her mind. And then I started trying to describe the rovers from The Prisoner, which are these white blobs. They look like a bubble from bubblegum, and they just go around and absorb people when you try and escape. And trying to explain that to people who haven't seen The Prisoner is a really weird conversation. My knowledge of The Prisoner has been completely subsumed by a pretty good Simpsons parody of it when they basically just had a dream sequence episode that was entirely The Prisoner. Yes. And they did the, uh, I am not a number, I am a free man. And then he immediately looks down at his jacket and he's like, oh, sorry, no, I'm number six. Yes. And <laughs> and they had the blob try and chase him and he's running away and he's running away and it gets close to him and suddenly he pokes out a stick and it pops. <laughs> and it cuts back to the bad guys and they're like, why did we think that would work? Shut up. You come up with an idea now and again. But you can't pop the rovers. They're like elasticy and won't pop. I've thought this through over the years. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> what you would do. I'm, I'm re-watching it at the moment because I wanted to check that it was as good as I thought it was. Mm. And it is so weird. And it was such a weird thing to show children. Because <laughs> there are parts yeah. of it that are deeply distressing. <laughs> but you can't pop them. And there was an episode that I was watching last night where they go through this whole thing to convince number six that he's actually number 12 and that includes programming him to use the opposite hand to the one that he normally uses. So he wakes up after being drugged for a while thinking that it's just the next day and he wakes up left-handed. All right. It's just really weird, like, mind games that they've played with him. Yeah, teach your kids about gaslighting. (laughs) Yeah, and all that they want to know is why he left his job. That's the entire premise of the show, is why did you resign? (laughs) I think it can be said that with a less convincing actor, Patrick McGowan, it may not have flown the way that it did. Yeah, he does the same as Adam West, which must have been a thing around about that time. He completely commits and does it seriously. Yes, and actually I was going to raise Adam West because, very sadly, Adam West died yesterday. Rest in peace, Mr. West. Best Batman ever. Yeah. I took the opportunity to remind people that while everybody remembers the shark-repellent bat spray, they neglect the thought that this is a Batman who had a shark hanging from his foot by its mouth, and he was punching it in the head. Yes. And had had the wherewithal to get the spray. Yeah. (laughs) Like, that's tough as nails. And he was prepared for everything. Yeah. One of my favourite Adam West quotes is when they were casting the 89 Batman, he was really upset that he wasn't considered for it because he was Batman. (laughs) (laughs) And he must have been about 60 at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is also the same guy, (laughs) the same Batman who, when he had a bomb and he was attempting to get rid of it, wouldn't kill several ducks to save himself. Yeah, because they're cute and they need to be there. He had the... The best moral compass of any Batman, I think. <laughs> Have you read Glenn Weldon's book on Batman? Oh, yes. I absolutely loved it. Oh, it's such a good book. And in terms of bat history, I think that one's the most detailed that I've read. Yeah, definitely. I've read a lot of Batman books. My only complaint was that Glenn Weldon, because I got the audiobook. Oh, yeah. Which is read by Glenn Weldon. And whenever he wants to make fun of a pedantic nerd on the internet, his voice goes like this. This is not the real Batman. 
Uh, and, and it's like that has now stuck in my head whenever I read anyone complaining about a comic book movie online. Uh, and so now it's like it's sunk in that deeply where I don't think I'll be able to shake it for at least a couple of years. Oh, because I've been reading it in the, well, actually, I think you're fine, <laughs> is the pedant's voice over here. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's Moss from the IT crowd. <laughs> yes, indeed. That's, that's who you have to do over here. But it's nice to know that he does comic book guy from The Simpsons. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the, uh, this is not my Batman. My Batman is a dark Avenger and would not stoop to having a colourful psyche. There's a real good subgenre of Batman history books. I know this because I did my uni dissertation on the music of Batman. Oh, excellent. Yeah, just on that 89 one, because there's some interesting stuff in that, that the Joker gets all the happy, friendly music, and uh, mm-hmm. Batman gets the sinister, can't-trust-him kind of themes. It was a very bad dissertation, but I got to watch Batman a lot. <laughs> And I also got to watch a lot of Batman documentaries and read a lot of Batman books. <laughs> One of my favourites that I've got is a Batman encyclopedia, which cross-references every single villain and every single thing that's ever been in Batman. And it's the size of a phone book. And you can just flip through <laughs> and find anything. And when the Lego Batman came out with all the villains, I was able to say to people, yeah, if you look up Crazy Quilt, you'll find him. <laughs> From Amygdala to Calendar Man. Yes. <laughs> All the way to Mr. Zaz. Condiment King, he was in there. It's oh just, my god. It's the best book I've ever had. And it's like, well, on Earth 2, this happens, but on Earth 1, it's this. And then there's a whole thing on Alfred's about on one of the Earths, he's evil. That he became the Joker in one of them. Yes. To give Bruce Wayne something to fight. Yeah. Making a lot of people really angry when that story came out. I think that was, I think that was, they, was at least referenced, if not. The origin was in the Neil Gaiman Whatever Happened to the Cape Crusader book, which I, a lot of people dislike, but I liked a lot. Oh, I haven't, I haven't read that one. It was basically during a time when they thought Batman had died, but in fact he was hit by Darkseid's Omega Beams and displaced in time. He went back to the Stone Age. Yeah, yeah. he got to be in the Stone Age with Barbatos the Bat God, and he got to go to like be a Corsair pirate and all kinds of stuff. It was, it was wacky. But basically... Neil Gaiman wrote a funeral for Batman. Yeah. But it was sort of a metafictional funeral in the way that all of Neil Gaiman's stuff kind of is. Yeah. And there's a really good running gag with a kid in the alley who's constantly being told to park people's cars and how the different villains interact with him. Okay. And my favorite is the Joker, who when he comes, because the kid has been, like he'll offer to park someone's car and they'll either threaten him or they'll do something that scares him and he'll end up being a little bit wary of them. And then the Joker comes up, and he won't even talk to him. Like, the kid's like, no, no. And he's like, aren't you going to offer to park my car? No, sir. No, you're the Joker. No, you'll kill me. No, I don't don't want to. No. And he leans in, and he goes, kid, I'm not going to kill you because it wouldn't be funny. (laughs) Just just like the, the, oh, come come on. Just give me a minute. Give me a day off. Okay? Yeah. It was a, a lovely little moment. Oh, there's some stuff with the Joker where you like, this is, it just makes me shiver a bit when it's done properly. Oh, yes. There was, I actually think that there's a Scott Snyder Batman run, which is very good, with the exception I don't like the Joker. The death in the death of the family story was too dark, too gross. Even the stuff in the killing joke is just, it's too much. Oh, yes. And I know that that's, yes. yeah, I know it's iconic. That's one of those ones that's been lauded for a very long time, but... 
frankly, has really suffered in the reevaluation in the last decade or so. Yeah, it's not held up well, the killing joke. No, it hasn't. But people are still, because I went to Comic-Con the other week. Oh, wow. And people are still really going on about it. There was an awful animated adaptation that recently came out in theaters. Yeah. Listeners who want to check out that, go to Doom Rocket to see the review that they put up with it. It's a very even-handed review of exactly why this was a wrong decision to make. Yeah, I decided not to go. Good choice. Just because I thought, I don't I don't want to do that. I've read it. I don't need to see them do that to Barbara Gordon. Yeah, nobody needs that. No. Ain't nobody got time for that. No. But in the 60s, Batman. <laughs> I was about to say, pivoting away from terrible, grim, dark Batman. Yeah. In the 60s, Batman, I was just going to say, my, one of my favorite things is the Joker. He wouldn't shave his mustache. So they've just put <laughs> all the makeup over the mustache. And it was one of those things that I didn't notice when I was watching as a kid. And the minute someone pointed it out, it's like you can't unsee it. Yeah, it's like Rosie, who has also been on the show and is my housemate, pointed out that, is it Groucho Marx? The one with the moustache? Yeah. Didn't have a moustache. Yep. It's just painted on. No, it was grease paint. Yeah. He grew it later for You Bet Your Life. And that's why I always felt those looked so strange. Because I'm used to seeing that painted on, like, super dark moustache. To see him with a rather nice light brown moustache, it's just like, oh, it's not quite right, is it? Yeah, it's something that you don't notice until it's pointed out, and then it's... It ruins that. (laughs) (laughs) When you were a kid watching the Batman 66, and this is a conversation I've had with other guests as well, did you take it seriously or did you know it was a joke? I think I took it like a cartoon but done by real people. Okay. Because it's got all those really big cartoony elements, but you can see that it's... I I think that almost made it cooler because then you could see them fighting again. I can do this as well. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas uh, when I was a kid, I remembered being really freaked out because in the the movie of Batman 66, they have a dehydrator and rehydrator machine, which is kind of like a vacuum cleaner that like fires a beam and turns you into powder. And what they would do is they would sneak some henchmen in, in vials, and the penguin was in disguise (laughs) and like hooked it up to the water tank and had them rehydrate a bunch of goons to attack Batman. But he used the hard water from the nuclear reactor that powered the Batmobile. And they exploded. Which made, they pop like balloons. And that's horrible because there's Batman and Robin throwing a punch and the person just disappears. Oh. And, And child Lucas was just like, oh my God, they died. They died. That does, no, it's not supposed to work like this. I think I've always been very good at kind of separating out TV, like cartoony deaths and real ones. In that if it's done in a certain way in a TV show, I'll be freaked out. But that one, I was just like, yeah, of course they exploded. And they don't really count because they're henchmen. <laughs> it's, the, it's the Austin Powers Look, you Powers haven't thing. even got a name tag. Yeah, <laughs> you've just got henchmen written on your T-shirt. So that doesn't matter. It's like when you're watching an Arnie film and you look at the kill count. It doesn't matter. They're not like real people. They've not got a backstory. Yeah. That guy that came running down the catwalk stairs and got shot halfway and then kept his finger on the trigger of his gun so it goes as he rolls down the stairs. That guy didn't have a name. Yeah, it doesn't matter. They're just there for that. They're they're grown in a vat in a basement somewhere. Yeah. Otherwise, how would you get so many? (laughs) My favorite thing as well is when they just jump off things. Batman was great for that. It's people who've been punched who then just jump to make it look like they've fallen. Yeah, they really have to worry about their occupational health and safety compliance if all of their railings are just below waist level so that when you hit them going backwards, you do that full 360 over, like, feet overhead fall. Yes. Really, I mean, like, their health and safety advisor should really be writing a very stern report on those catwalks. Yeah, it just makes me so happy thinking about the Batman, though. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I was going to say, we've got, we've got a little bit of time left before we have to wrap up. So is there anything in particular you wanted to raise? I think my other thing I wanted to ask, just because I'm not talking to a Brit, is how well known are Morecambe and Wise not in the UK? I know of them because I have a lot of friends that are comedy nerds. But I can definitely say that until I came here to Australia, I had never heard of them. So Morecambe and Wise are two middle-aged, well, were two middle-aged English men in the 70s who had, like, a variety hour. And the thing was that there was no straight guy. I mean, notionally, Wise was the straight man, but they were both so stupid. (laughs) And this is another thing that I was raised on, but I find it so funny. So they've got, like, sketches, like, there's one where they're just dancing around the kitchen to the stripper making breakfast. And it's a very simple premise, but it's just so stupid. And there's all these little, like, one-liners, like, an ambulance goes past and he goes, you'll never sell any ice cream at that speed. (laughs) (laughs) That's so dumb. But it's so good. Oh, it's so dumb. And I always, like, it's the stupidest comedy you'll come across. And this is more a thing for anyone listening to go away and look up. There's a Tom Jones sketch where they decide they're going to project his image by being his backup dancers. So he's just really seriously singing at the front and they're just prattling about in the background. (laughs) (laughs) And doing, like, little tap routines and stuff. And I think anyone should just go away and look at that sketch if they're ever having a bad day. Because it's the silliest comedy I've ever heard. And at Christmas recently, we had someone with us who... It was their first Christmas with us. And I was watching it and just cackling all the way through. And he's like, have you never seen this before? It's like, no, I watch this every year. (laughs) This exact same (laughs) video in this exact same way every year. But it's just really good. But I was just wondering how British it was. Uh, Exceptionally, if you're wondering... (laughs) But I mean, a lot of Australian television stuff would re-air a lot of, often, yeah, again, this kind of two British guy sketch comedy. So you get Morecambe and Wise, and you get Mitchell and Webb, and you get Fry and Laurie. Yeah. So all of that was replayed a lot, especially in the 70s and 80s in Australia. Do they have the two Ronnies as well? They do, and I've been getting little snippets of, because long-time listeners will know that I love the game show Jeopardy, and... Is only shown over here on Foxtel Classics, which is where they show all the old comedies and like I Love Lucy and stuff is on that. Mm. And because they're showing syndicated episodes of Jeopardy, this quiz show, you'll get occasionally three a day, which when you DVR them is great because then you can just watch like incredibly intelligent quiz shows for the entire evening. But then it'll catch the beginning of Porridge. Yes. At the end of Jeopardy. And so I'll get like the, the window gag. Of every porridge. Well, porridge is really, like, that's a really British one because it's about this wise guy in a prison and it's never really about, like, escaping. So it's Ronnie Barker, but it's just about him getting one over on the prison guard and that's the whole thing. It's like an office comedy but in a prison. There was porridge and then there was another one which it switched over to, which was, like, at a shop. Oh, it was um, Open All Hours. Yes, that was the other one. And that was the one where where they were writing on the windows and it always ended up being something getting misspelled or some sort of innuendo or terrible thing. Which is also just a thing in the UK, is misspelling at Grace's. (laughs) Really? So we have, there's a really thing, like there's a thing that annoys people, which is the Grace's apostrophe, which is when you put an apostrophe in the wrong place. So like people write tomatoes and then put an apostrophe. Oh, Oh, that hurts my soul. Yeah. It does. Open all hours. Is again an office comedy, but in a green grocer's. And then it's a lot about that older guy, so Ronnie Barker, again, trying to get with the nurse from down the road. And then it's got <laughs> David Jason in it, who went on to play Del Boy in Only Fools and Horses. These may just be words to people. Because, <laughs> you know, that's another one where 
I was, I think I was at a workplace or something, and someone referred to one of the sales reps as a real Dell boy, and I nodded along as if I knew what the hell he was talking about, and then went back to my computer and looked it up on Wikipedia and learned that meant, oh, he's just, just a little bit dodgy, just a little bit. <laughs> bit dodgy but always trying something on but has good chat so it's yeah. really good at like talking himself up um, and it's all get rich quick schemes absolutely so selling things out of the back of a car yeah trying to flip something etc etc the other really great tv program from that era well in my opinion and people don't agree is dad's army see i've heard of dad's army <laughs> but I have never seen any. So what was the, the premise? So Dad's Army is about the Home Guard during World War Two, which is a load of old boys and people who weren't really fit to serve in the army. They kind of stayed to defend Britain's shores. Britain didn't need that much defending because we're an island. So there was very little that these men had to do, and it was just kind of their evening meetings and their evening training. So it's like the Rotary Club or something, almost. Yeah, yeah, and there's one episode where the Nazis do get in, and then and they're kind of like taking them down and they're trying to get this guy's name and one of them yells don't tell him pike (laughs) and it's just it's just the clip that everyone knows from that but these are all things in britain that you can just yell at people and everyone will get the reference but it's very niche so you do it abroad and people have no idea what you're doing much like i was gonna say all these other shows that i'm into I mean, we could go into LOLO, but we'd be here all day. It's so good, and the accents are so bad. <laughs> if say this only once. There's a two Ronnie sketch like that, which is how to learn. I think it's it might be Finnish, but learning it phonetically, Finnish or Swedish. And it's just like L-O-F-U-N-E-X. <laughs> so, oh no, it's Finnish people learning English. S-V-F-X. <laughs> But no, my favorite conceit of LOLO, which I think should be taken into most mainstream media, is the idea that on the show, the conceit is when someone is speaking French, they are speaking English with a French accent. When someone is speaking German, they will speak English with a German accent. And when someone is speaking English, it will be the most like Cockney, right, come on chaps sort of English accent. So you'll have the same character switching accents to speak to different people. And I remember like seeing it for the first time and going, that's actually really clever. Like that's like so that your audience knows exactly what's going on. There's no need for subtitles, but it's very clear what's going on. There's consistency that Hollywood need. Exactly. I hadn't even clocked that that's what they do because you just grow up with it. Yeah, because they had Michelle from The Resistance would be speaking with a French accent to Renee and the staff and then turn to the two British pilots and go, right, oh, chaps, how are you holding up? And they would go, oh, thank God, you speak English. <laughs> and again, it's, it's so simple when you think about it, but it's just such a lovely little conceit. It's so stupid, though. All of our comedy from that year, era is just so silly. Oh, no question. It's real dumb. <laughs> yeah. And we're kind of known now for these, like, oh, yeah, very clever, The Office and things like that. Mm-hmm. That's not British comedy. <laughs> British comedy is so broad and so stupid. And I think that's really what makes it. Like, it's just weird, weird conceits and just silly jokes. And there's one where in Only Fools and Horses, where someone's trying to look suave and leans against the bar, but they've lifted up the hatch to go out. So they just <laughs> fall through it. Oh, it's, it's, it's up there with uh, my, my dad's favorite moment from any of the Pink Panther movies. I think it's from the Pink Panther Strikes Again, or one of like the fourth one, like the one that's not as good. And at one point, 
Inspector Clouseau sits down in his office chair that reclines a little bit, but it's broken, and so it swings him back so his knees are above his shoulders. <laughs> and in order to get up, he grabs the tie of the gendarme next to him and pulls down as he pulls up and knocks the guy's head on the desk and stands up in one motion. And I remember my father nearly dying of laughter. Because it's just this little background moment as the conversation continues. You know, fall, grab, clunk, and it just keeps going. And I've tried to explain that to people and demonstrate and be like, oh, but it's like this, but it's really funny. And they go, yeah, sound, sounds like it. No, I can, I can see that. <laughs> it's like a Steve Martin type of humor as well. And Steve Martin is kind of at his peak. Oh, yes. The really silly stuff from the jerk. Oh, yes. For those who haven't, I would highly recommend going and finding uh, Born Standing Up, which is his autobiography of going from being a magician to being a stand-up comedian to when he stops being a stand-up and becomes an actor. Oh, it's so good. Oh, it's amazing. And it's like he would talk about his bits where he'd be like, and now this is my glove into dove trick. And he would take off his glove and fling it in the air <laughs> and it would fall and just go splat onto the stage. And he would stare at it for 10 seconds and then go okay and for my next trick he's so precise as well about how because it looks really haphazard his comedy but i but he planned it all my favorite is happy feet he's like oh no i'm getting happy feet (laughs) and the king tut video just oh yes distract from everything the king tut video is one of my bad day videos because it's so (laughs) stupid All right, Lizzie. Well, I am mindful of the time, so we should probably start wrapping up. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? I am pretty much everywhere at LA Harrison Music. So that includes my website, where you can see parts of the fort are on there, and Twitter and Instagram and SoundCloud. And I have a weekly email of joy, where I talk about life lessons from pop culture, which started off as my softball weekly email that I used to send out to my softball team, because I captain this team and I don't have much sports experience, so I was taking all my sports lessons from popular culture, which works (laughs) in a way. And then that's broadened out into this weekly email. So this most recent week is about Adam West and Batman. And that's at tinyletter.com forward slash LA Harrison Music if you want to subscribe. I kind of have to now because you just said it's going to be about Adam West. So I definitely need to see that. Oh, yeah. There are some good life lessons from that Batman. All right, Lucy. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you very much to Lucy Harrison for her time. When I asked Lucy for advice on what cocktail I should make, she mentioned that she'd only started drinking alcohol last year, and as such had had a grand total of two cocktails, a mojito and a passion fruit martini. This called for drastic measures. So I'm going to bust out something classic, old-fashioned, and that will open the door to many, many other drinks. You might even call it a major key. Major key! Major key! I present the Gimlet. Combine two ounces of botanical gin, one ounce of lime juice, and three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup in a shaker with ice. Shake vigorously and strain into a cocktail glass, garnishing with a wedge of lime. 
Now that doesn't sound particularly fancy or showy, but this classic cocktail is single-handedly responsible for some of the most popular drinks all over the world today. Just scratching the barest of surfaces. A gimlet with mint is called a south side. The same drink with a slice of cucumber in the shaker is called an east side. You put it on ice, you throw the east side on the rocks, and you get an old maid. A gimlet served tall with a splash of soda and ice becomes a ricky. Add mint and you have a south side ricky. A ricky with a dash of absinthe is a tritter ricky, as invented by the Everly Bar in Melbourne. Going back to the gimlet, add a little bit of Angostura bitters and you've got a Bennett. If you take a Bennett and replace the sugar syrup with apricot liqueur, you have a Barnum was right. If you use honey syrup in place of the simple syrup, you've got a drink called the business, or bizaness. You can also add a little bit of egg white and make a bizaness sour. If you're a fan of a cosmopolitan, you can trade the simple syrup for some grenadine and reduce the lime by a quarter of an ounce, add a dash of orange bitters, and you've got a debutante. Add absinthe to that one, and you have something called a professor. And last but not least, the gimlet works beautifully with fresh berries. Try strawberries, raspberries, or blueberries for a big burst of flavor. You can also add a dash of a corresponding liqueur, for example, strawberry schnapps, triple sack, something like that, to accentuate the berries that you've chosen. So you see, the humble gimlet has a lot of secrets hidden under the hood. Like when you're talking to someone expecting to talk about music and find out they wrote their dissertation on Batman. Enjoy! The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. Fair warning, Snapchat is still full of baby photos. If you have a few dollars in your pocket and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. You can pledge a thousand dollars. That would be awesome. You can get a whole bunch of rewards like physical mail and cursive tweets. You can even get a care package of comics and toys and all kinds of weird stuff from me. Also, I would just really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can head on over to iTunes for the country of your choice and leave us a five-star rating. It helps people find us. You can also write a review, and I'll read it at the end of the show. Won't that be nice? Last week, I made the announcement of the arrival of our son, Hero, and a few listeners actually sent me some things. So I wanted to say thank you very much to Dan and Heather for the Snuggies and the blanket and the other stuff that you sent. I really, really appreciate it, and so did Kimiko, and so did Hero. He actually took a nap under your blanket today. If you want to be absolutely fantastic... You can go to my PayPal, which is L-O-K-I underscore N for Nelly, B for Bravo, at Hotmail.com, and use the description field to tell me what you'd like to donate. Next week, I'll be talking to Katie Malloy, co-host of the Silver Screen Queens podcast, about singing in the rain, 
and a little show you might have heard of about a vampire with a soul. Join me, won't you? just wants to be involved we should just let him in <laughs> we, we already, I already took him to the park earlier and he got to play on the beach and roll in the water and dig a hole and be just really awful to the other dogs I like to think that dogs have a to-do list and he's doing very well on his today <laughs> yeah he was at the point where uh, he was digging a hole to bury his tennis ball on the beach and another dog came up behind him to sniff at his butt, and Junior actually changed the angle of his dirt throwing to throw dirt in the other dog's face. Oh, that's great. <laughs> My auntie's dog, when I used to take him on walks, he would get so excited playing fetch that he'd start throwing the ball for himself. <laughs> and it's like, I'm not really needed, am I? Do you want me to just go home? I'll just... He's like, no, you need to be here for official supervision, otherwise I'm technically a stray. Oh, that, that's all he needed me for, that and food. <laughs> it's like those dogs that are so excited to be walked, that they start, like, you know, get their lead in their teeth and walking themselves. Oh, they're my favorite dogs. <laughs> and dogs that look very important, like they're on business. Yes, like they shouldn't be stopped. Sounds great. As Junior continues to voice his displeasure. <laughs> Give it a go saying, I'm going in a second. <laughs> yeah, I'm also a little bit croaky because we went to someone's house yesterday and it was their anniversary of three years in Australia, which meant the karaoke machine they have attached to their TV was turned on. Oh, what's your karaoke song? My karaoke song is Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. That is a difficult thing. It is, but you do well because it's so fast. You just kind of throw yourself into it. You can't wait for the bouncing ball on the words because Freddie Mercury is actually too fast for any karaoke machine to follow. So you just have to watch Shaun of the Dead a whole bunch of times and kind of get the rhythm down. Yeah, that's my karaoke technique is a really quick song. And then people are just impressed no matter what you do. They're just really impressed that you got all the words out. But there are some other ones that I find like I keep in my back pocket. Like the one from when I was younger was always Zoot Suit Riot because it wasn't very difficult but there was a little bit of like crowd response, like people can sing back to you and you can kind of swing it a little bit and that's fun. But then there was one I, would, I started doing as a joke that became like actually a fun song to do. And that's Downtown by Petula Clark. Oh, that's a good song. It's a good song and it's, it's an especially good song if you're in a group of people and no one's gone up yet. And so you're like, all right, I'll be the, I'll be the first one to go up and take this hit for the team and I'll do something ridiculous so that no one feels self-conscious and they can just choose what they want. Yeah. Well, we take the opposite approach and we just sign someone up and don't tell them. <laughs> oh, no. And then they have to go up and sing. We did it once to a friend and he had to go up and sing Hakuna Matata. And that was, that's <laughs> not a good karaoke song and he didn't know it. Oh, no. This, this is how British people do things. We just really, like, <laughs> screw our friends over. But very passive-aggressively, though. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh, it's a laugh. Yeah. I think the last time that happened to me, I was at the Hornsby RSL, which is not a nice place, and I was signed up to do Michael Bublé doing Quando. 
which <laughs> the only reason I knew it was because there's that bit in the Blues Brothers where they cut to Murph and the Magic Tones, and he's singing it in Spanish, so I kind of knew how the cadence went. Yeah. And that's all I had. And from that, I had to just, like, improvise and just, when in doubt, just, like, sort of authoritatively say things like, Yes, tell me, when will you be mine? Tell me, Quando. Did, did you shatner it? A little bit. On some of the verses, because I didn't actually know the cadence of the verses. I only knew, like, the intro into the chorus being done at a very fast, like, sort of Spanish speed. Uh, I was going to say more, more, like, flamenco, not Spanish. Spanish is not a type of music. Spanish is a language. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of a... You can go with it. This is this is my musician's approach. Yeah, that works. We can call it that. <laughs> the other karaoke one I do is Maggie May. Okay. Well, yeah, Rod Stewart is just an easy sing. And if you just want to stand up and sound half decent, Rod Stewart is the way to go. Although I could I could see that's difficult for me because it's like right at the top of my register. And, and it's at it's at that top register for like it's just and it's like it's like I'd have to stay at that level for the entire song and you get very very I haven't thought about quirky. it from a man's perspective <laughs> like it's right in the middle of my range and it's folky and it's just like the easiest thing I've ever had <laughs> I found doing superstition is difficult because when Stevie Wonder sings that song he starts off quite low and kind of jazzy and you can do that first verse kind of yeah kind of in the back pocket, and then it gets more and more flair and higher and higher as it goes, to the point where you are like sort of hollering along with it by the end of it, and you're just like, it's, yeah, by the end you're struggling. It's almost like professional musicians are really talented and know how to do their job really well. Yeah, it's, it's almost like hours, hours of rehearsal. <laughs> it's almost like they've devoted their lives to a thing, and you stepping into that thing and thinking, ah, I can pretty much do it. Is incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> when I was at the peak of my, I don't really perform anymore. But when I was at the highest point of doing recital, it was three hours a day, okay. just on those pieces, and that was at university level. So maybe six hours is what most people are doing. <laughs> I think it's James Rhodes, who's a pianist, who I follow on Twitter because he's very oh, funny. Oh, he's great. Yeah. Isn't he good? Yeah. And he had this fantastic article where he's like, you know, you hear everyone say, oh, I could never learn to play an instrument. And he just started to dictate just how many hours he would put in like on a daily basis. And it's like, you know, if you think you don't have enough time, just stop watching TV. Because it's like, after dinner, until you go to bed, right, get in, practice. You, you know, you'll, you'll hammer down your nails. But other than yeah. that, it's like just practice, practice, do it again, do it again, do it again. He's obsessive though, because for him it's like therapy. Oh yes, it, it is a form of therapy. I've, I read he had a really, he had an awful childhood, and then he went into finance, and he was just miserable. And then he took the piano up again, and that's mm -hmm. just how he gets it all out. Oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so technically he's not the best pianist, but he's really giving it his all. Yeah. Yeah. This is reaching way back. There was a comedian named Christopher Titus in the 90s. All right. And, yeah, he got into stand-up because he would basically go to therapy and would just pace the floor and just, like, let loose, again, of his terrible childhood circumstances. And the therapist couldn't help laughing because he was very <laughs> funny and very cutting with, with his observations. From that, it was, have you ever thought about doing this and actually going out and doing stand-up? And so to have the little Britney Spears wireless microphone because he could never stay in one place. Oh. And so he would just pace the stage and just 
go. Just get it all out. That's a great way to do it. There's a comedian over here called John Richardson. He's, he's from Liverpool. And he got into it because he'd broken up with his wife. Like, they'd got mm. divorced. And he was at this open mic night, quite drunk, and just got up on stage and started venting. And then realised that he was quite a funny man, and then just kept going back to do it to work through the divorce. And then one day she was in the audience and saw oh, no. him do it. Oh no! And now they're back together. <laughs> what? What? Yeah. That is not how that story is supposed to end. No, it's supposed to be like, how dare you? But no, yeah. it was because he was suddenly really passionate about what he was doing and stuff like that, and they got back together. That's a good story. It's a good story, but kind of a dangerous moral to put forth. <laughs> yeah, just go on stage and rant about people, and it'll all work yeah. out. Yeah, I'm sure the people that you're you're saying potentially awful things about, I'm sure they'll be totally cool with it. She was. Dance to reason. Yeah.